As our newly confirmed U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony J. Blinken, is presenting the Biden doctrine as a new direction in U.S. foreign policy, there could be no better time to review the history of U.S. diplomacy. So we're extremely lucky to have with us today an individual who spent decades serving in senior levels of the U.S. government and as president of the World Bank, Robert Zellick. He and our moderator, Ambassador Robert Jordan, will discuss Zellick's new book, America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy, and much more. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Gardner, director of the McBride Center for International Business at Baylor University. We're so pleased to have you with us today for this third installment in Baylor's annual Global Business Forum, presented this year in cooperation with our good friends at the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth. Baylor and the Council have had a wonderful relationship for more than 30 years, and this series represents a new form of cooperation between our organizations. We hope you'll return for all of the installments in this Global Business Forum series, which are free and open to the public with Baylor sponsorship. Next up on Thursday, February 25 at 6 p.m. will be a conversation between Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist and columnist for the New York Times, and Austin Goolsby, former chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, who is now at the University of Chicago. They will discuss Krugman's latest book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. I should note that all of the books discussed in our series, including Robert Zellick's amazing volume, America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy, all of these are available at a 10% World Affairs Council discount through the online store of Interabang Books. Just remember to enter the discount code DFWWORLD at checkout. And now as we move into our program, please remember to enter your questions for Robert Zellick and Ambassador Jordan in the question box uh, at the bottom of your, of your Zoom screen. Robert Zellick, who has spoken previously for both Baylor University and the World Affairs Council, is a senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. In his broad and distinguished career of public service, he served as president of the World Bank Group as a most productive U.S. trade representative at a time when China was entering the WTO and we were deepening ties around the world and in senior positions at the state and treasury departments. Zellick holds academic degrees from Swarthmore College, Harvard Law School, and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Our moderator today is our good friend, Ambassador Robert Jordan, diplomat in residence at the Tower Center for Political Studies at SMU. Robert served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the time just after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. He's written a book about that experience. We served, uh, he served for many years with the international law firm Baker Botts heading its Middle East practice based in Dubai. Ambassador Jordan serves on the Board of Advisors of the DFW World Affairs Council, and I can repeat from firsthand experience that he plays a most important role in the leadership of this organization. 
So thank you, Robert Zellick and Robert Jordan for joining us today. I'm looking forward to a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve, and welcome everyone. Uh, many thanks to Baylor and the World Affairs, World Affairs Council. Uh, I would like to let uh, Bob Zellick make a few introductory remarks and then uh, we'll do a little bit of question and answer and then invite uh, questions from our audience. So Bob, take it away. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Jordan, for moderating this. And I also want to thank Steve and, and uh, Rachel for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be back with, uh, with uh, Baylor and the Dallas community, even if only virtually. Um, so I'd like to start by stepping back a few years. Well, maybe more than a few. Let's go to the evening of February 6th, 1778. Ben Franklin had just arrived at the French Foreign Ministry to sign America's first two treaties. And he was approached by a colleague, Silas Dean, who asked him about Franklin's somewhat unusual suit. It was a suit of worn blue Manchester velvet. And Franklin replied, a bit of revenge. Well, it turns out that four years before, when Franklin was in London, where he represented Massachusetts and three other colonies, he had gotten himself into trouble. Franklin had sent some copies of the Massachusetts governor's somewhat embarrassing private correspondence uh, to the legislature in Boston, and it stirred up a hornet's nest. In a way, Franklin was America's uh, first whistleblower. So George III's government summoned Franklin before the Privy Council, 13 bewig gentlemen in a room that was called the cockpit. And that was the name because under Henry VIII, that had been used for, for fighting. And England's Solicitor General, Alexander Vetterburn, proceeded to subject Franklin to a blistering attack for an hour. And Franklin stood motionless, didn't say a word. Now this was a small society of powerful men in London and it was an utter humiliation. Edmund Burke, the conservative philosopher was a parliamentarian and he said it was beyond all bounds and measures. Lord Shelburne, who later became the prime minister at the time of American independence, called it scurrilous invective. Franklin called it bull baiting. It had turned Franklin, a loyal friend of Britain, into a very determined enemy. So four years later, in 1778 in Paris, Franklin wore the same suit of clothes that he had worn in the dressing down in the cockpit. So diplomacy includes settling scores. Well, it turns out that Franklin's private secretary was a British spy, and he sent the two treaties to London, we believe within about 42 hours. And on top of that, because he knew it would be bad news for, for London, he shorted the market as well. So diplomacy includes deceit and scoundrels too. So this is the story I relate in the introduction to the book. And it gives you a flavor of tales to come. But the account of Franklin's diplomacy in Paris offers some other insights because what he was about was negotiating from war to peace, a recurring challenge for the United States, including through today in Afghanistan. Franklin had a weak hand to play. And this struck me because not too long ago, former Secretary of Defense Mattis said, you know, the United States no longer has total domain dominance. And it made me reflect because for much of US history, we didn't have the total domain dominance and we had to conduct diplomacy. Franklin also really invented public diplomacy because in 1778, the United States was little or unknown, but Franklin was world famous as a scientist. And he used that image 
to be part of his diplomacy in Paris. His, his, his face appeared everywhere. It was on snuff boxes, it was on rings. And uh, Louis XVI got so frustrated with it that he gave a chamber pot with Franklin's uh, image on the bottom to one of Franklin's fans. Franklin also had to negotiate with his own delegation, which is I'm sure Ambassador Jordan and others have had to deal with over different occasions. Um, he got along quite well with John Jay. But John Adams, he said, always an honest man, often a wise man, and in some things and in some cases, totally out of his senses. He had to negotiate with allies, France, and also with the Congress, which had directed the American delegation to follow the line that France chose. And at the end, of course, they closed an amazing deal. Not only the peace, but getting all the territory all the way to the Mississippi. And in the face of this amazing success, one of his colleagues, Henry Lawrence, said, Mr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, you certainly earned your country's gratitude. And Franklin replied, I've never known a peace that didn't have critics. He said that phrase from the Bible about blessed are the peacemakers probably applies to the next life, not this one. So what is this book about? Well, I wanted to tell the stories of how leading Americans sought to address foreign policy problems in their eras for over 200 years, starting with Franklin and going all the way to George H.W. Bush in 1989-92. And I wanted to focus on people and particular episodes, stories, because I wanted to highlight the practical problem-solving work of diplomacy. I added my assessments based on experience and some insights on the conduct of diplomacy. But along the way, I wanted to draw the ideas that have contributed to the pluralism of American diplomacy over 200 years. And I closed by identifying five traditions. I also have an afterword that tries to examine the Clinton, Bush 43, Obama, and a bit of the Trump presidencies within the framework of these five traditions. So in a way, the book is a multiple biography because I wanted the tales to bring to life for the readers. Some of you may recall that Thomas Carlyle uh, wrote once that history is biography. Now a word on why I wrote the book. When I was in government, I frequently drew on history as I thought through problems. And I wanted to encourage others to think about foreign policy this way, particularly those of a younger generation, perhaps some of the students at Baylor. Many foreign policy courses these days focus on international relations theories. And they're interesting, they're intellectually challenging, but when I dealt with issues such as German unification or trade strategy or NAFTA or genocide in Darfur, Sudan or the World Bank, they didn't really seem to apply too well. So I wanted to focus on the practical work of problem solving. Now, some of you may recall, Henry Kissinger wrote a book in the 90s titled Diplomacy and Dr. Kissinger used history to talk about foreign policy. As I read the book, I enjoyed it a great deal, but I thought Dr. Kissinger was writing primarily from the European real politic tradition. And while that's one tradition of the, for the United States, I wanted to broaden and emphasize the American experience and ideas. And I suppose another thought in the back of my mind is that in many of the posts I had younger colleagues, sometimes assistants, because I enjoyed history, I would often ask them questions. Maybe I was torturing them a little bit because I didn't know how much history they learned. And insofar as they had learned history, I discovered this primarily from World War II on. And the first 150 years of American history are full of fascinating people and events 
that I wanted to recall from the mists of time. I suppose there was another logic for me too, which is that when you think about history, it's important to recognize that sometimes imperfect results are okay in a far from perfect world. So sometimes people are a little glum these days and I wanted to emphasize that history can offer some optimism, insights on how to do better, not just timeless obstacles. Now, let me give you briefly a little flavor of some of what I tried to cover. The first chapter after the introduction is actually about Alexander Hamilton. And that was a conscious choice. I picked a secretary of treasury as opposed to a secretary of state because I wanted to introduce the important idea of economic statecraft. I looked at the Louisiana Purchase and I asked the question, was Jefferson lucky or was he good? Of course, this audience is familiar. There are many, many books who just cram the shelves about the Civil War, about battles and generals and slavery and social effects, but you'll find very few on foreign policy. But yet it was absolutely critical. So I look at how Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward thwarted intervention by Great Britain and France, which was very close and a very real danger. The Texans may recall that during these years, the French actually imposed the Habsburg Emperor on, on Mexico. And Lincoln and Seward wanted to counter them, but not at the same time to aggregate France enough to be able to bring back uh, the, the French into our civil war. So their, their creed was one war at a time. Many of you, of course, will know Teddy Roosevelt, but you probably associate him with San Juan Hill or the Great White Fleet. But it turns out he was the first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize for mediation in after the Russo-Japanese War and the first Moroccan crisis of 1905-1906. Now these may seem like distant events, but they were very close risk to world war that just occurred that actually of course broke out within the next decade by another crisis on the European periphery. So what Roosevelt was focusing on was how do you maintain the balance of power? After World War I and Woodrow Wilson's failed Versailles Treaty, Charles Evans Hughes in 1921-22 negotiated naval arms control and a regional security in Northeast Asia. And I wanted to draw this one out because today as you think about issues like North Korea or Iran and you read about arms control negotiations, I think one can learn that unless you connect the arms control with the regional security context, it's not likely uh, to be successful. I included a chapter on a man named Ben Everbush. You won't find him in most foreign policy books. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. He's really the godfather of American science and technology policy during World War II and, and, and in the Cold War, which of course was really the key to our success with the Soviet Union. And I wanted to include science and technology because I think it'll be very important for the competition with China today. And also there's a special challenge of connecting diplomacy and scientific policy as you would imagine with issues like climate change or pandemics and biological security. Since we're in Texas, at least virtually, 
I have a chapter on LBJ and the decisions in late 1964, early 65, to really take over the ground war with American troops. Now, this is a, a, a episode of American history that's very, very well researched, very well reported. So what I wanted to try to do in this chapter was draw on my experience and say, what went wrong? Could it have been different? And I focus on six factors that might be applied to other interventions at other times in history. Ronald Reagan still is a challenge for many historians. So that chapter focuses on the Cold War as a battle of ideas. I, I, I dug into how Reagan, actually starting with his days with General Electric, kind of used his writing and speeches to think through his convictions. But I draw attention to the key complementary roles that were played to connect him with negotiations. And here, after having just lost George Shultz this week, Shultz was a key player in this at, at the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And my former boss, James Baker, played a similar role on domestic and, and international economic policy in the first and second Reagan terms. One of your uh, professors in Texas, Will N. Bowden at the University of Texas, who's doing a biography on Reagan, told me he thought this chapter was the best single chapter on, on Reagan's foreign policy. And then I examined uh, Bush 41 as the consummate alliance leader. Uh, to really understand that period, one has to see the special relationship between Bush and James Baker. It's a key to understanding the period. They were both prudent, they were both gentlemen, but they were also fiercely competitive and they wanted to win. And that was part of their action and Baker was the person who was on point, who got things done. And so most historians associate them with the peaceful end of the Cold War in Europe, with the Gulf War. But I also draw attention to many ways how that four-year administration laid the foundations for post-Cold War policies, not only with Europe and Russia, but with NAFTA, important part to Texas, with the Uruguay Round that created the WTO, with APEC and Asia. The only climate change treaty ever ratified by the Senate came out of the Bush administration, and it's still the framework for all the negotiations going on. And then, of course, preventing the sharp break with China. Now I'll close with the five traditions, which was my way of trying to pull the stories together. The first one might have particular resonance in Texas, which is the importance of North America. It's interesting. If you look on foreign policy websites of many institutions, you'll see discussions of Europe and Asia and Middle East and, and uh, some of Latin America and Africa, but almost never North America. It's my view that Obviously, North America was critical in the 19th century, but also you'll see it was true in the 20th century too. And I discovered a speech that Ronald Reagan gave in 1979 as he was just starting to run for president. This was his opening speech. It's almost hard to imagine today where he said, we're at a point where the United States will be much better off if Mexico and Canada are stronger. And it's time that we stop thinking about our nearest neighbors as foreigners. That sounds a little different than what we've heard over the past few years. But I also wanted to emphasize that NAFTA was always much more than a trade agreement. It was a part of the idea of embracing Mexico as the old PRI corporate system that dated back to the 1920s was coming apart. And it's a question of where the pieces of Mexico society and government would reattach. And that's an issue we're still dealing with today. But I also wanted to emphasize the positive base because it's my belief that if we get this right, 
North America is a continental base, 500 million people, three democracies, energy uh, self-sufficiency, ability to export, better demographics. If we can, can use our, the people as, a, as, a, as human capital and a resource, that makes America stronger in dealing with the other regions of the world, including China. The second tradition is trade, technology, and transnationalism. And here, what I wanted to emphasize from the very founding of the United States, trade was more than a matter of economic efficiency. It was the way in which the United States would relate to the world. Remember, this was a world of empires. It was a world of, of, of mercantilism. And so the US idea was to create openings for private sector actors. And that's the role of transnational players. If you think about whether it's missionaries or engineers or soldiers of fortune or social media groups, much of America's influence in the world is through those uh, transnational actors. Third, I emphasize alliances. In here, you see a very sharp break. For the first 150 years of US history, because of the warnings of Washington and Jefferson about avoiding permanent or entangling alliances, the United States stayed away from alliances. And if you really look at American foreign policy, there are ways to try to engage with the world, whether law or economics or arms control or other methods without being with alliances. But from 1947 to 49, we invented a new type of alliance system. It wasn't planned. The Marshall Plan, the, unification, the, the creation of the Federal Republic of Germany, NATO, these came out of reactions to events. And for 70 years, the United States has worked with this alliance system across the Atlantic, Pacific, it's adapted it. And one of the issues we face today is where will we go with this alliance system? Fourth, I draw attention to the importance of congressional and public support. This is another topic that foreign policy experts often ignore. If you read the work of John Ken or George Kennan, a very wise man, you can see why they'd never send him up to the Hill to talk to members of Congress. I try to draw out a man named Senator Vandenberg, who was critical in the relationships with Truman during that early 47, 49 period, a Republican of, of Michigan. But you can see the same pattern today, whether it be people like uh, uh, the late Senator McCain or Luger or, or none, or the ones that are in the Congress today. And fifth and finally, I talk about America's purpose. And here I'm not picking up the idea of exceptionalism. Many countries feel they're exceptional. But the best way I can communicate this to you is for those of you that still carry wallets, take out your wallet and look at the back of a dollar bill and you'll see the great seal of the United States. You maybe never gave it much attention. And you'll notice on the reverse of the seal, there's this unfinished pyramid surrounded by the eye of Providence, 13 levels, one for each of the, the original states. But underneath it is the Virgilian motto, Novus Ordo Seclorum, New Order of the Ages. So from the very start, the founding fathers were thinking in rather big terms. But it's my view that the purpose changes. At first, it's simply to survive as a world of republics and a world of empires. Then it's to preserve the union. Then for Teddy Roosevelt, it's rising on the world stage with the balance of power politics. For Woodrow Wilson, it was to make the world safe for democracy. For FDR, it was the four freedoms. In the Cold War, it was the leader of the free world. For Bill Clinton, it was the indispensable power. So what will it be in the 21st century? My suspicion is there are three components. One is it depends on the context in the world. 
Second, depends on the public support. And third, there's always this notion about an aspiration for freedom and where will that take us? And of course, that's an echo we hear today with the new Biden administration. So that's probably a good place to stop, Ambassador Jordan, and to turn over to you. Well, thanks for that introduction. Uh, this really is a lively, fascinating book with wonderful stories. You could probably pick up just any chapter and read it uh, independently of the others, although I recommend reading it straight through. Uh, it, it, uh, it certainly taught me a lot that I didn't know, and it has a, a very practical way about describing uh, the history of American diplomacy that I think the average reader will very much uh, enjoy. You talk about the importance of alliances. Um, and uh, certainly we've seen alliances be effective in the past, defeating Nazi Germany, uh, the, uh, the first Gulf War. Uh, but it seems to be fashionable now, at least in certain quarters, to uh, talk about alliances as perhaps not being as useful anymore. Uh, what's the purpose if America really can uh, go out on our own uh, and our allies, according to some sources, uh, have been feckless and not particularly helpful. So where do you see the, the role of alliances for America going uh, today and in the future? Well, that's a great question, Bob. And you know this from your own experience that when the U.S. leads alliances properly, it can extend our influence. We bring other people, whether it's their resources, their ideas, their, their troops, their legitimacy. And as I, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, the US notion of alliances was really unique. The old European notion was, was quite different and just quite instrumental. But for the United States, the, the notion of alliances became, I think, a capacity where when we did it right, we could rally others to our most important aims. But what made it successful was it always allowed room for other countries to pursue their national interests. And that's the challenge, whether it's Japan or Europe or Germany or, or uh, you know, others throughout the world, uh, Great Britain. How, how do you manage to sort of strike that balance going forward? Now, from what foreign policy people call a geopolitical perspective, there's another interest which is geopolitical thinkers will point out that while the US and North America is big, we're not nearly as big as the whole landmass of Eurasia, whether going all the way from, from China uh, in Asia all the way to, to Europe. And from a strategic point of view, the United States never wanted one foe to be able to control all that land, whether it's the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And so from a geopolitical perspective, the United States wants allies and partners that are on the maritime rims of that. So that you can see the connection there with Great Britain or Western Europe or Japan and the island sort of allies. And so there's a very practical reason why we want those connections, economic and, and security terms. And then over time, our alliances tended to take on the notion of more American values. Not in all cases, not, not every ally or every partner sort of is a freedom and democracy. But this will be a theme I think you'll hear from the Biden administration in that in dealing with some of the challenges of China we have the, and Russia, we have the question of how will free societies unite about that? And that's clearly part of the American alliance system. And finally, I think it's important to recognize, of course, alliances have to adapt. 
I mean, I saw this at the end of the Cold War, not only with the enlargement of NATO, but if you think about the challenges today for NATO, there are probably issues of cybersecurity. There are issues of sort of hybrid threats to the Baltics and Poland. There are also issues on how we can cooperate on other security questions. So the challenge for alliance management, and in some ways, George H.W. Bush and, and James Baker were the masters of this, was kind of how, how do you draw the best from others, but also always keep an eye on the US goals and, and objectives. Um, and I think that is, is an ongoing challenge for American leadership. What would you say to the eastward expansion of NATO? You mentioned NATO, was it a mistake to expand eastward? Uh, was it an unnecessary provocation to, to Russia? Now, this is a subject of, of some debate. I, I, I was an early proponent of NATO enlargement uh, to Eastern Europe um, because the Bush vision at the end of the Cold War was to create a Europe whole and free. The Cold War started because of the division of Europe and we wanted to make sure that we created a security environment, particularly for the, the countries of, of Eastern Europe. At the same time, um, it, it's very important when you extend the security guarantee to mean it. And you know, if you're willing to put your sons and daughters' lives on the line, um, you, you have to be careful how far you go. So in, in the past years, there was debate about, should we extend this guarantee to Ukraine or Georgia and others? I would, would have been on the cautious side on that one. Um, but I think if you actually think about some of the politics now in Europe, including the rise of some of the populist and nationalist forces there, just think of how dangerous it would be if say a Poland was caught between the danger of Russia or Germany, uh, whether that would actually play into the politics just like we saw in the 90s and 20s and 30s. So I think that, um, I think that enlargement was, uh, was the right thing to do, um, but I would stop it there. And you know, if you, uh, to go back to the region of the world you dealt with, Bob, um, you know, we always have to, you also have to think about uh, how you might adjust those relationships. So with Turkey today, for example, you know, I, would, I wouldn't kick them out of NATO, but I'd make quite clear that with certain behavior, we're not gonna come to their support, which by the way, under the NATO treaty and the complexities of article five is certainly within the political rights of the United States. In connection with alliances, uh, you mentioned of course, Bush and Baker. Let me ask you a little bit about Jim Baker. Um, he told me one time, he claims that he gave you uh, your first job in government, but uh, uh, your, your book talks about, I think, Dick Darman bringing you in and then you started working with Baker at Treasury. But here's what Baker says about you in his memoir, uh, The Politics of Diplomacy. He mentions that we had worked, you had worked together at Treasury um, where he was a superb manager, policy analyst, and writer. Uh, I had learned at the White House that to control policy, you need to control paper. So I made Zelik counselor of the department and mandated that every piece of paper sent to me had to go through him first. That made him, as one journalist put it, my second brain. Uh, he goes on to say that, uh, uh, of course, you were such a tremendous person to rely on uh, that uh, he had enormous admiration. And I'll have to say when I was... Uh, considering taking the job as ambassador to Saudi Arabia, I consulted with Baker quite a bit. Uh, and then when I had decided to go ahead and take the job, he said, you know, you're gonna run into Bob Zelik. 
Uh, I want you to know that Bob Zellick uh, may be just about the, the finest public servant I have ever worked with. So uh, uh, I heard the legend of Bob Zellick uh, long before I met you uh, during the WTO discussions. But uh, tell us a little bit about why Baker was successful, particularly uh, under the pragmatic view uh, that you take of, of the importance of, uh, of diplomacy. Well, thanks for those kind words. And obviously, I was fortunate to have such a such a great boss. In some ways, the nature of him being a boss is the best way to start to answer your question. Baker was always focused on results. He was always focused on what we get done. He didn't like people who just talked or BS about things. It was always kind of how you accomplish things. And he had an astute sense of power. Uh, but he also didn't overuse power. So phrases like, you know, the iron fist and the velvet glove, or as I used to describe it, people wanted to be his friend and they sure didn't want to be his enemy. That was the best sort of representative you could have for the United States. Uh, and it was a special partnership with President Bush. You know, in some way, there really hasn't been a relationship between a president and a secretary of state like that since maybe Jefferson and Madison, and in this way, it was much closer. And one has to understand the two individuals and how they operate. And, and you know, you know, as a, as a lawyer, Bob, I mean, Baker was always focused on knowing his brief, being fully prepared. Um, one story I used to tell people is, you know, if you, if you stay up till two or 3 a.m. kind of writing talking points for your boss, um, in Baker's case, he would always mark them up, use them, make them better. So it's a good reason to, to do it. And, and for what it meant for his staff was is that he didn't really care where you were from or your sort of background. It was kind of, uh, it was performance. Um, you know, I was, I was from the Midwest. I don't think, uh, you know, after working with him eight years, uh, he really actually knew much about my background. It didn't matter, it was kind of what you perform. Um, and of course, as part of this, um, there's, a, there's a, a new book out uh, by Peter Baker and Susan Glazer on Baker. It's a good book to understand Baker the negotiator and Baker the political thinker. And I, I, and, and I, I recommend it, but it misses one key aspect about how Baker used to connect dots and put things together strategically. And I suspect, you know, as journalists writing story about politics and negotiating incidents, you might've missed that. They might've missed it. And just to give you a small example, some people may recall the problems the Reagan administration had in Central America, the Iran-Contra issue that almost uh, destabilized the presidency. And so one of the things that Baker did early on, uh, quite quickly in 89, which I was a part of, was we worked closely with the Congress to get some financial support for the resistance as we were moving for sort of free elections. And it was bitterly politically difficult. The bo that book focuses on kind of the politics of it. But what they don't connect is our strategy actually was based on some proposals by Costa Rica, which many American administrations would not have come up with. Um, we put pressure on the Soviets to squeeze the Sandinista regime at the same time, a really important part of the diplomacy. We flooded the country with observers, including Jimmy Carter, who worked better with us than he worked with some democratic administrations because of respect for Baker. And of course, we were fortunate and at the end, the, uh, the election sort of worked out because we figured a country with 400% inflation and large unemployment, if it's a fair election, they're gonna throw out the guys in charge. I use that as an example because to really understand Baker, one has to understand his ability to connect these dots with some strategic aims. 
So he wasn't just a negotiator. He wasn't just a lawyer dealing with problems, uh, but he was certainly a person that others would want on their side. And uh, he had an extraordinary knack for bringing people along to solve a problem. I, I, I've never seen somebody who could both be firm and tough, but somehow leave room uh, to work with people without uh, having created a break. So, as you mentioned earlier, we, we recently lost George Schultz, but maybe you could give us a comparison with Schultz. That it's the common uh, talk is that uh, Schultz was very attentive to the building, to the bureaucracy within the building. Uh, Baker, on the other hand, uh, brought in a small number of confidants that he kept very close to him, but was not particularly reliant upon the career people in the building. Uh, how were their styles similar or different and, and how will history remember uh, George Schultz? Well, um, as, as I alluded to in my opening, uh, to understand Ronald Reagan's success, I think it's important to understand he's really an autodidact. He's a self-taught man. And you can see in his writings, which, which have come out you know, in, in sort of past years, which weren't apparent at the time, how he would really use his writings to think through things. Um, Dick Darman, who worked with Baker, used to say they refer to Reagan as the great communicator. In fact, he's a great editor, he's a great writer. But in pushing ideas, it then depended who was around him on the execution. And Baker did that obviously politically in the first term on economic issues, treasury in the second term. And George Schultz was absolutely critical for this, uh, for the Reagan administration's success uh, with the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War. Um, Schultz was sort of more taciturn in style than Baker. Baker had that sort of combination of Houston, Texas, Princeton sort of uh, uh, style. Schultz, they were both Marines. Um, Schultz, of course, was a PhD economist. And Baker understood economic issues, but he wasn't a PhD economist. And, and Schultz did have an idea about kind of the changes of information technology and economics. You know, going back to his actually time in the Nixon administration, you could see he's one of the people that could foresee they were going to move to a floating exchange rate system, you know, at the time of the breakup of sort of the, the Bretton, Woods, uh, Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate standard. Um, he also was a person that had a special interest in North America, which is one of the fondness that, that, uh, that, that I have with him over time. As for the, the use of the, uh, the, the State Department, I think some of that is a little overstated. There's no doubt that George Schultz did rely very heavily on the career staff. So did Baker, but Baker did it by also sort of bringing in a small group that could work with him and do his style. And again, sometimes people will ask me today, and as you get a new Secretary of State, what's the key relationship? And I point out that the effective Secretary of State have to have a close partnership with the President, more than any other cabinet officer, because you got NSC staff, you got White House staff, every department thinks they're running their own foreign policy. And uh, one of the things that Baker said early on uh, troubled some of the Foreign Service officers until they saw the effect. He said, I'm, I'm the President's man, at, at, the, uh, at the State Department, not the State Department's man at the White House. Now, there, that may have troubled them, but at the end of the day, it ended up being a very powerful Secretary of State and they were engaged on a lot of the issues. So I think each in their own way were great Secretaries of State. We had a question from the audience that I think follows up on this, uh, which is, 
Uh, why wasn't Baker more adamant with President Bush 43 uh, about not going into Iraq? Oh, that's one you probably have to ask Baker. <laughs> I have. Uh, I, I suspect, you know, this is, this is where you get into some generational sort of issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Baker is very loyal to the Bush family. He's very respectful of the role of the president and the president's making decisions. He knows how tough that job is. So if people had asked for his advice privately, I'm sure that yeah, he would have given it. Uh, Brent Swocroft wrote an op-ed about the same time this that, that sort of uh, argued against going uh, into the, the second war. Uh, Baker wouldn't have operated that way. Um, and, but Baker would have been available to tell people, you know, part of Baker's skill is you, you have to read how he's communicating on something, right? So you remember in the 90s, there was a lot of criticism that Bush 41 hadn't gone on to Baghdad. And so Baker would point out that after the second war, nobody raised that criticism anymore. Let me, uh, go to a couple of additional uh, questions uh, from the audience. Uh, one is, which is the worst foreign policy decision in US history? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, boy, there's a, there's a few that would compete for this. I mean, obviously, the chapter I have about uh, the decision to Americanize the Vietnam War is a, is a deep tragedy. But I partly try to explore with some sympathy about the nature of the decision making at the time and kind of how hard it was to be seen as uh, stepping back from the steps that John F. Kennedy had made or sort of trying to deal with communism widely. It was part of this question of alliances. You're willing to defend Berlin, you're willing to defend Korea. What about sort of South Vietnam? But one that will surprise people, but fits my background, is that I keep trying to remind people that trade policy is part of foreign policy. And the Smoot-Hawley tariff of 1930, which raised our average tariffs to 59.1%, deepened the Great Depression. For people who like trade surpluses, the United States had a trade surplus, but we also had 25% unemployment. So it gives you some caution about trade surpluses. But that, of course, leads to 1934 and another chapter, I talk about a man named Cordell Hull that changed, a, made a big shift. He got Congress to give authority to the executive branch to negotiate trade agreements. He, not, he negotiated some 31 agreements with 28 countries. Uh, and uh, the principles of those agreements became the whole key to the GATT and later than the, the WTO system. So one of the points I, I closed the book with is a, a quote from Tocqueville where I make the, the point that America's greatness doesn't lie in always being more enlightened than other nations, but the ability to repair her faults. Maybe I'll have to stick with that one. And that's, that's one that uh, certainly resonated with me. Uh, going back to your comment about uh, the Vietnam War and LBJ, you mentioned uh, there were six factors that really impeded success uh, in that conflict. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? So one is the power of recent history. And this is important because people will often discuss current issues using analogies to recent events. And in the case of in 1964-65, it was obviously Korea and World War II. But 
you have to be careful how you apply analogies. I find that history is often better for posing questions than it is sort of simple analogies. Second, uh, there is the issue of credibility. Uh, Henry Kissinger made a wonderful statement that credibility for countries is like character for, for, for human beings. And that's true, but when you hear somebody make the case that we have to do something because of credibility, watch your wallet because it suggests that the other arguments may not be as strong as you would like. Then third, another one's quite important, even for today, is presidential experience in psychology. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was a Senate Majority Leader. Senate Majority Leaders operate in different ways than Speakers of the House or, or other executives. In a way, you could see that LBJ was always trying to put together a legislative package. He was trying to put together a, a, a consensus. That was actually different than what John F. Kennedy learned. John F. Kennedy learned after the Bay of Pigs, in part because Eisenhower pushed him on it, to sort of make sure that he had debate among his advisors. And he often used Robert Kennedy to make sure he kept his sort of options open. That wasn't the way that Lyndon Johnson managed his politics. Fourth was America's faith in military power. And this is a tricky one because militaries have to believe they will prevail, but uh, there's always a risk if you over rely on military power about hubris and, and overuse. And you could see this in the debate in the LBJ period, they actually had advisors that said it was better to try and fail than not to try. And that, that's, that's not really a, a purpose, it just becomes a sacrifice. And then the fifth one is a related point, which is combining military power with diplomacy. This is always a challenge for the United States. We have this view that we fight a war and then we turn it over to diplomacy. You actually have to connect the two. And in the story in 64, 65, one of the people who kind of doesn't show up much is Dean Russ, the Secretary of State. Um, you know, if you think actually in history, how Ben Franklin used the victory in Saratoga in 1777 to drive those treaties I talked about in 78, or how Jefferson kind of used the threat about taking New Orleans to kind of deal the deal or Lincoln and Seward or others. So sometimes it's just use of deterrence as opposed to use of force. But we have to think about how we use military power with diplomacy. And then the sixth and the final one is presidents obviously have to bear responsibility for their teams, but it was, it's the failure of advisors. Um, and part of my conclusion from my own experience and and even the discussion we've had today is presidential teams matter a lot. And you probably saw this, Bob, you know, the, the air in the West Wing of the White House can sometimes draw a little sycophancy from people. And I've, I've been in so many meetings where people would say before they went into the, the, the Oval Office, well, I'm gonna tell the president this or this, and they get in there and they melt. And it's understandable, you're dealing with the president of the United States, he's got a lot of worries. But frankly, I always felt you had an obligation to be courteous about it, but raise your disagreements with the president. And in the LBJ period, you didn't have a chief of staff. So a lot of responsibility was on McGeorge Bundy, the NSC advisor. And I think I discussed how he might've offered LBJ an alternative. It couldn't have just been a policy alternative. Giving LBJ, it would have had to be a political exit strategy too. We've got a, a number of questions here about whether the United States is overextended in the international arena or whether we should continue to be active internationally and tackle terrorist networks, counter-nuclear proliferation, and so forth. What's your view on that? Well, obviously, you don't want to, you know, 
overstretch or waste resources. But I, I would start with the premise that the United States is an amazingly powerful country. And here it's not only the government, it's not only the military, but in particular, as I mentioned with this transnational aspect, our private sector is still the genius that generates the world. I mean, look at here in Texas or frankly in North Dakota, how you know a group of intrepid innovative people took an existing technology venture capital and changed the future of energy markets with the whole sort of uh, the, the, the fracking uh, uh, sort of series of development. They've learned a little bit about needing to watch the bottom line as well. But, <laughs> but anyway, it's a good example or the vaccines that we're all trying to get a hold of that aspect. So there's an important part of seeing America's resilience and strength. My own view, going back to what we we're saying with alliances is the United States works best when it enlists others, shares some of the responsibilities and, and, and the burden, but to do that, you can't just order people around and tell them what to do. And so you, you always have to keep an eye on your key interests, whether it be security, whether it be economic and, and politics. And here sometimes the United States can get stretched because while we stand for certain values and freedom, we have to decide going back to John Quincy Adams, at what point do we stand for those and what point do we plan to actually actively act on them? And sometimes, as we saw in Vietnam or sometimes other cases, the United States can push over a line. Sometimes the situation just isn't right or ready for it. But those are the questions of judgment that separate states people from those that aren't. We've seen uh, just, of course, recently with the new Biden administration, uh, I think an effort to uh, reinvigorate certain alliances to reach out to uh, elements uh, of the world, organizations, the Paris uh, Climate Accords. Um, and then we've also seen Secretary Blinken uh, and President Biden emphasize rebuilding uh, the diplomatic corps, re rebuilding the State Department. Um, how difficult do you think it will be to uh, return to uh, what some people might call more normal or normative uh, diplomatic practice uh, around the world. So uh, you'll find this interesting, Bob. This week, I actually I had a, a video conference with the the German Foreign Ministry's planning staff, where they actually brought in people from all their different embassies. They were asking for my initial take on the Biden administration. I'll I'll share with the audience a couple of points I made there. First and most important, President Biden has a huge domestic agenda. He's got COVID-19 and the economic recovery. He's got immigration issues. He's got climate issues. He's got race issues. Um, and to be very politically blunt about it, his performance with the vaccines and the medical treatments and the economic recovery will determine whether he's successful or not. And here I'll, I'll use another Baker analogy. When he was chief of staff to Reagan in 1981, he said, Mr. President, you have three priorities economic recovery, economic recovery, and economic recovery. Well, Al Haig wanted to do something in Cuba and they decided that wasn't really the first year's sort of agenda. So one has to understand this will be the preoccupation. And in our political system, as you know, you know, working with the Congress, Biden also has got a very diverse sort of, uh, sort of governing coalition with, even with his own party. It's gonna take a lot of president's time. Now, second, um, Biden, of course, likes foreign policy and he knows the players, but so what will he most likely focus on? 
I think the natural expectation is he would leverage off some of the things he does domestically. So for example, um, if he's doing some things with, um, with climate, and then you got to expect that would be a big focus for them going to the, the, uh, the Glasgow sort of COP meeting in November. If he's focused on immigration, well, I expect some work probably with Central America and, and, and I hope sort of Mexico. Uh, if you're focusing on vaccines and biological security, that takes you to another international agenda. Now, some people call these the transnational issues. And while focusing on these, of course, you can't ignore the traditional security sort of questions. But those are a good starting point for starting to rebuild your ties with your allies and partners because that you can have a shared agenda. I think one of the cautions that I've suggest is I'm, I'm afraid the new administration on the trade side will probably lean more in the protectionist direction. I think there's a number of members from Congress and kind of people that sort of bought into some of, of Trump's approach on this. And I think they're gonna undermine their relationship with allies and partners if you don't have a more active trade and economic strategy. For those of you in the business world, you know, companies are now, you know, data is driving most of their operations. What are the rules for data? What are the standards for technology? Those, those will be very important part of America's uh, position. And then where I also see a little tension, Rob, is there's, there's a new sort of fad of talking about great power uh, politics and diplomacy. And the reason I call it a little fad is I don't think it ever went away, but it was a way of, of some people from the Trump administration trying to put coherence on a policy with, with China and Russia. If great power diplomacy is seen as zero sum, if it is seen as uh, simply being conflict and criticism, well then, how are you gonna deal with issues like climate and biological security or international economics? Or frankly, how are you gonna deal with Iran or North Korea if you don't figure out a working relationship? So I think you'll see a tension in the administration there, particularly with China, about they will clearly wanna show that they're firm and tough, but at what point do they try to find some uh, mutual interests? And then the last thing is that if you look at the history of foreign policy, there's a famous quote, Harold Macmillan, a British prime minister, when asked about his plan said, events, dear boy, events. And events will drive, uh, whether it'll be in Venezuela or Iran or North Korea or, you know, or Myanmar. And that, that will be kind of determine sort of where the new administration takes these issues. We've just got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to combine a couple of final questions. And that is, where do you see our China policy going in the next year or so? And would the use of what's been called a quad uh, approach of the US, Japan, Australia, and India in trying to bring India uh, further along as a counterweight to China uh, be useful as the Trump administration did? So to, to take the, the, the second part of that, uh, the administration will undoubtedly work with the Quad, but I even think they'll broaden it. So this, they'll, they'll emphasize the role of democracies and sort of commonalities in dealing with China. Um, they have to be a little cautious with this and that is, relates to the first part of the question. Uh, people in Asia or frankly in Europe don't believe you can contain China. So they don't wanna see a relationship that's simply based on conflict and, and sort of differences. And so the challenge there will be, how do you kind of organize and, and sort of focus on common ground, whether it's deterrence in the South China Sea, issues with Taiwan, um, uh, and intellectual property rights, for example, 
China's now set up intellectual property rights courts that fine for foreigners about 85 to 90 percent of the time, but the penalties aren't high enough. So can you focus on that? The forced technology transfer issues related to the joint venture requirements. Um, and so if you could remove some of the joint venture requirements. Going back to your question about Baker, this is the nitty gritty work of diplomacy. It's not just making slogans about, you know, this statement or great power this or great power that. It's kind of how you sort of make it work. And as for the India component, this is where it's also important to understand the history of other countries. India is not gonna be an ally. India is a very sensitive country because of its own colonial experience. India can be a partner and India can calculate sort of, sort of common interests, but there'll be high sensitivities in terms of how one manages that relationship. But it would be a different type of relationship than say we have with uh, Japan or South Korea in Australia, but it can certainly be a player in this. I would emphasize not only the quad, but ultimately Europe will be very important on this. So how we develop a common approach on some of these issues with Europe will also determine how we deal with China in the future. As for the essence of dealing with China, it starts at home. So obviously we got to get our act together in terms of strength, technology, uh, then there's the alliances. What I would caution is what I saw during some of the Trump administration was the idea that we would almost try to chase after China's approach of sort of blocking things. Um, I think America's strength is its openness. We can't compete with China by how we block trade or block investment or block people. Ultimately, our strength is being open on those issues. And that's what distinguishes us from a Chinese authoritarian system. What a great uh, topic to end on, Bob. I can't thank you enough. This has been a delight for me to be with you again. Uh, I want to thank you and turn it back over to uh, uh, Steve and uh, Rachel. And Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm the Vice President of Programs for the Council. Hi, I'm Kirsten. I'm the Programs Manager here at the Council. And today we of course wanted to thank our speakers and gentlemen for being with us today, but we also wanted to take this opportunity to, to thank Jim. This is his last week as President and CEO of our Council, and we truly appreciate his dedication to this organization. I've worked with Jim for almost 10 years and truly appreciate his leadership. We will miss having him at the council, but we do wish him the best being able to bike in New Mexico in the future. Absolutely. A lot of you have joined us for various programs this last year. I can't believe it's almost been a full year since we've been meeting virtually. Um, but Jim's leadership has really guided us through this period of time. Um, and we want to thank him for, for that leadership and for being just a wonderful boss. Um, many of you know, this is my first position out of college working with the council. He has been the best boss that I could have possibly asked for. So um, we want to thank you all for joining tonight. Uh, Rachel, take it away. Yes, so again, thank you all for being with us. Um, please do remember to go to Interabang and pick up a copy of America and the World. Um, as, as Steve mentioned, you can receive the 10% discount using our online code. You know, Ambassador Jordan, Mr. Zellick, thank you again for being with us. We truly appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you guys on another Zoom program soon.